Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part two of his teaching, The Value of Relationships. This morning, we're talking about the value of relationships. And so let me see that main point slide. These are the four topics that we're going to discuss in this series. The heart of a father, family and friends, the value of marriage, and the family of faith. Now, we talked about the heart of the Father last week. Today, we're going to cover family and friends. I realize that's a pretty broad set of topics, but uh, it wouldn't be possible for me to cover everything about relationships, especially family and friends, in one session. But what I decided to do was highlight some people in the Bible that exemplify what godly family relationships look like and what godly friends are like. Amen? I picked two of my favorite examples from the Scripture. And what we're going to do is we're going to split this into two sections. We're going to start with Abram and his nephew Lot. Amen? Abram and his nephew Lot. We're talking about family. Now, we're going to read a lot of Scripture to set this up. And as I've said before, when we read a lot of Scripture, just consider it story time with Dr. Scott. Amen. These things we read in the Bible, these wonderful stories, they happen to real people who lived real lives in ancient times. They had dreams, they had aspirations, they had feelings, they had emotions. They had families and friends that they dearly loved. And many of them experienced high drama and great loss in their life. But many of them faced and defeated overwhelming odds in order to rescue family and friends. This is one of those stories. Now, we recounted this story way back when we did Uh, the Prosperity of God series. But now we're coming at it from a different angle. Let's start reading in Genesis chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, in the New King James Version. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Amen. I got through them all and pronounced them all correctly. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Keterleomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. One year later, Keterleomer and his four armies arrived And the five cities of the Dead Sea Valley prepared for battle. That's where we're going to pick it up here. Genesis 14, starting at verse 8. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim. Against Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elazar, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, 
brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Can you say amen? Now, this may seem on the surface to be a story about four kings waging war against five other kings, a story about warfare and plunder, a story about an enemy trying to make slaves of the five cities of the Dead Sea Valley. But to me, it's much more than just that. This is a story about family. While Abram had been blessed by God with great resources and a wonderful wife, he didn't have a family, that is, he didn't have children of his own. So this is a story about an uncle who so valued his relationship with his nephew, the son that he never had at that time, that he was willing to go to war and take on overwhelming odds to rescue Lot and his family from bondage. Think about it. When Abram found out that the four kings had taken away his nephew Lot, all his family, all his servants, all his resources, he mobilized a reserve fighting force of 318 men. I can appreciate that because I spent 21 years in the Air Force Reserve flying fighters and bombers, and I got mobilized during 9-11 and flew 18 bombing missions over Afghanistan. So I know what it's like to call up the reserves. At any rate, Abram mobilized his reserve fighting force of 318 men, and they began to chase the enemy over a formidable stretch of territory from Sodom to Dan, which I checked it out as about 200 miles. Now, I personally believe this was a coordinated effort with Abram's men and the men of his allies Mentioned in verse 13, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner. But even so, you got to know that they were seriously outnumbered. Abram led a small band of armed men against four armies that had prepared for war a year ahead of time. And they came to conquer the Dead Sea Valley and all of its major cities. A small band against four kings' armies. Think about it. Yet, because God favored Abram's righteous cause, they routed the enemy and were completely victorious. Absolutely astounding. Kind of like David and Goliath played out with armies. One small army taken on four huge armies that had spent a year preparing to come to attack the cities of the Dead Sea Valley. And now this ragtag army is going to chase them down and win a huge victory over them. Awesome story in and of itself. But there's a couple of things I want you to see here, some of the details that are important. First of all, Lot had decided well before all of these developments that he and his household would move into the valley and pitch their tents towards Sodom quite possibly the most wicked city in the world at that time. 
And if you read on in Genesis, you find out that after the four kings had ravaged the city of Sodom, after it was restored because of Abram's heroic actions, it was ultimately judged by the Lord. It's almost as if Abram's victory granted the five cities of the plain a reprieve and space to repent before God brought judgment into the valley. He used Abram to bring deliverance, hoping that they would turn to God and say, thank you for delivering us and repent and not be judged and destroyed because of their sin. But alas, Sodom ultimately was completely destroyed by fire and brimstone, and only Lot and his wife and his two daughters escaped the carnage. Now let me talk about this for a little little bit because people don't realize what brimstone is. I've got a background in science and I can tell you what brimstone is. Brimstone is flaming balls of sulfur that burn at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And they rain down on the five cities of the plain. And archaeologists who've studied those five cities found out that whatever it was that destroyed these cities destroyed them from above. A great source of heat was detected in the roof structures of the buildings in these cities. And what they figured out was this great source of heat, this intense heat basically broke through the roofs and consumed anything and anyone that was on the inside. Not a really good way to go. I want you to hear what the Apostle Peter had to say about the condition of Lot's soul after being exposed to the sin and the perversion that was rampant in the city of Sodom. Let's read from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6-8. through 8. It says, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. In other words, just seeing what they were doing, not partaking, but just seeing. You know, King James says it vexed his righteous soul. You know, there's a lesson in that. You need to watch what you watch. Make sure you don't let certain things in your ear gate or your eye gate because it will affect you. It will vex your righteous soul. Yes, you're born again. Yes, you're spirit-filled. But you're not immune to the vexation of the sin and evil of this world. You need to keep it out. You know, back in the day, probably it's probably been 25, 30 years ago when they came out with what would Jesus do? I remember when that came out and I... And I was like, that's cool, but I want to know, what would Jesus see? What would he listen to if he lived today? Would he listen to certain kinds of music? Would he watch some of the videos that some of us watch? I doubt it. So what Jesus did was driven by what he looked at and what he heard. Amen. So maybe there's a lesson in life there. Steer clear that stuff. It'll just... It'll junk you up. That's all I got to say. 
All right. So taking all this into consideration, a really good case could be made that Lot's troubles were largely self-inflicted. Isn't that right? There were things he was exposing himself to that were entirely preventable. Now, if you know the story, Abram and Lot dwelt together until their resources expanded to the point there wasn't enough land to support their herd, so they had to split up. And Abram stayed in Mamre, which is kind of close to present-day Hebron, and Lot chose to go into the valley and pitch his tent towards Sodom. When he parted ways with Abram, the last thing he should have done was move his household and his great resources near the city of Sodom and expose them to all that rot. He put all of that at risk, and all of it was taken away by the four kings when they conquered the city. Nevertheless, this is what I want you to hear. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, even though Lot was largely responsible for the trouble he was in, Abram set out to rescue Lot for one reason and one reason alone. He was family. He was family. We don't go to help our family because they're perfect. Amen. We go to help them because they're our family. You know, we talked last week about emulating the heart of a father. And here we see a prime example. Abram went to rescue Lot. I believe the son he never had, at least at that time in his life, not because he was perfect, but because he had the heart of a father. His very name, Abram, means exalted father. Later on, we know that God changed it to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. But here in this story, he's just an exalted father and he doesn't have a son. And so when his nephew, which is like a son to him, is in trouble, even though he got himself into the mess, he's going after him to rescue him anyway because he's kin, because he's family. Abram means exalted father, so I believe in this story, he's a type of, he's a reflection of the father God. The Father God does the same thing. You get yourself into trouble. It's entirely your fault. You cry out for help. You repent for doing what you did to get you into the trouble. God's coming after you anyway. He's coming to help you anyway. It doesn't matter whether you got into it by your own doing or by someone else's doing. God is there when you need him. Amen. And he doesn't hesitate. Not when it comes to one of his children. Amen. As we said last week, the heart of the Father is not to condemn, but to restore. Amen. All right, because of Abram's courage and commitment to family, Lot and his household were rescued, and all of his great resources were restored. Now listen, as a peripheral benefit, all the spoil of the five cities of the plain was also recovered. And if you read the rest of the story, Abram gave a tithe off of all that spoil, and the Bible says God was glorified. Amen. All because one man had it in his heart and mind to face and overcome overwhelming odds 
to rescue his family from bondage. Now, it's not likely that in this day and age that you're going to lead a small army against overwhelming odds to rescue your family. But what you can do is this. You can pray that the members of your family who are not saved will be saved and be rescued from the bondage of the enemy. Isn't that right? You can live your life in such a way that they know where you stand when it comes to your faith, but they know you'll be there if you're needed. Family relationships are important to God. They should be important to us as well. Now, I'm well aware that family can be difficult at times because not all of them know the Lord. But if you're a believer, God is expecting you to bring him glory by cultivating relationships with your family. If you see a family member in trouble, your first impulse should be to do what you can do to help them. It may not always be possible. Some people, some family, they don't want your help. Sometimes you just have to pray. In any case, you make sure to be led by the Holy Spirit as you approach sensitive family situations. Everybody's got those, right? You know what I'm talking about. All right, I want to shift from family to friends. I want to talk about David and Jonathan. Quite possibly the most celebrated friendship in all the Bible. I love it. They're warriors. They're comrades. I can relate. I went into battle with Marines. I went into battle with Air Force pilots. I know what that's like. I've seen comrades that I went to battle with fall. And I've been there. I've done that. So this is, this is personal to me. David and Jonathan, they were the type of people that, that I, I aspire to be like. So we're going to talk about David and Jonathan, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And again, we're going to have to read a certain amount of Scripture to bring this storied relationship to life. So just bear with me. And a certain amount of background is necessary to set up some of the passages that I'm going to read. All right, so listen up. After David had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel, and after he had been assigned as the armor bearer and personal musician to King Saul, David convinced Saul that he would take on Goliath, the great giant Philistine in the Valley of Elah, where the Philistine army and the Israelite army were in a standoff. And you know the story. David killed him with a sling and a stone, cut off his head, and the Philistine army was routed by the Israelites as a result. So let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 17, verse 55 through 56. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Now let me put it in our vernacular. We would say it like this. Who is this guy that would face a giant like this with a sling and a stone? I want to know who his daddy is. I want to know where he comes from. Who is this guy? Let's pick it up and continue reading in verse 57. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, 
Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. I want you to get a mental picture of this. That would make an impression on anybody, even a king. After David slew Goliath and the Philistine army was put to flight, Abner brought him to the king so he could tell him who his father was and who his family was. Amen? Verse 58, And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Every time I read Bethlehem or anything like that, I remember when Trisha and I were in Israel in the 80s and we were in Bethlehem or we were trying to make our way to Bethlehem and we stopped and asked an Arab man for directions to Bethlehem. And he went, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. You mean Bethlehem? And I'm like, yeah, that's the place. And he gave us directions and we got there. Amen. All right. First Samuel 18.1. Let's continue the story. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, that seems like kind of an abrupt thing to happen. You know, but you got to you got to have the picture in your mind. Listen to me from what I can tell from reading my Bible. Jonathan was always at his father's side, especially on the field of battle. So he must have been there at the Valley of Elah when David pledged to King Saul that he would kill Goliath. He must have been there. He must have heard what this young boy said. I killed the lion. I killed the bear. And I'm going to kill this uncircumcised Philistine. You can bank on it. He was there when David made that outrageous claim. Now he's there as David recites his family history to the king with the head of Goliath in his hand. And it made a huge impression on him. The profile of courage that he witnessed in David's life made a profound impact on his life. He saw qualities in David that he admired. Not only did he admire them, but he wanted those qualities as well. He saw strengths in David that he admired, but he wanted those strengths as well. So he made up his mind. He was going to make covenant with him. Previously, he had only known him as a gifted musician and a worshiper of the Lord. Now he realizes this David is much, much more than that. In David, Jonathan saw a fearless warrior, a giant killer, and an ardent defender of the honor of Israel. And the Bible says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That's pretty heavy. Can you imagine a friendship like that? 1 Samuel 18, we'll continue with verse 2. Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. Saul saw the same qualities and the same strengths in young David that Jonathan did, and he made sure he had a permanent role in his kingdom as a captain of thousands. But sadly, many of you know the story, before long, jealousy would set in and King Saul would end up seeking to destroy the man who he once admired, the man, may I remind you, who had single-handedly saved his kingdom. 
Verse 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Here we see that Jonathan and David made a covenant between the two of them. Uh, Now you have to understand that covenants in those days were an extremely serious thing. They were taken very seriously. Once you entered into covenant with someone, it was rarely broken. It was so deeply rooted in their culture, it almost never happened once you made covenant that that covenant was broken. Now, notice that Jonathan took off his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt and gave them to David. It was in this manner that covenant partners would symbolically share their identity, their honor, their possessions, and their strengths. Individually, they were strong, but in covenant, they were greater even than the sum of their parts. They would pledge to give their lives if necessary to protect one another and serve one another. And if you read on in the story of David and Jonathan, it wasn't long before that covenant was tested. On more than one occasion, Jonathan warned David when his father was filled with demonically inspired hate and determined to destroy him. Now, this is what I find so intriguing. He even did so against his own interest since he was next in line to take the throne after his father, King Saul. If David survived, he knew he would never be king. Yet he protected him nevertheless because he was his friend, because he cut covenant with him. He had such a powerful soul connection with his friend David that none of that mattered. He had pledged and made covenant, and he would never break that pledge, even if he had to defy his father, the king, even if it cost him his life. What a powerful example of what friendship can be like if we choose to follow it. How many know what it means when I say fair-weather friends? We've all got them, but sometimes we've got those rare friends that will be there when you need them. Amen. Friendships like this are rare, but not impossible. Friends like that can be closer even than family. This is especially true of godly friends. Listen, we all know when close relatives don't know the Lord, they can't really relate to you. But a friend, a friend in the faith, can be closer even than family because they know you emotionally and they know you spiritually. And there are things you could talk about with them that you can't talk about with family because they don't know. Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? And you can see this principle in the following verse. I call it the David and Jonathan effect. Proverbs 18, verse 24, New King James Version. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That was true of Jonathan and David. We also see that forming friendships takes effort. Notice that Jonathan was so taken 
by the image of this courageous young man standing before his father, the king, with Goliath's head in his hand. That he made up his mind, I'm going to be friends with that young man. He's got some things that I need. And I believe maybe I've got some things that he needs. And I'm going to make a covenant with him. I'm going to be friends with him. He took the initiative. He put himself out there. And he was friendly. And they became friends. Now I know that for some people that have introverted personalities, putting yourself out there can be a major deal. But listen, just ask the Lord to help you. Say, Lord, normally I'm shy and I'm reserved, but I want to make friends, so help me to be friendly. Help me to reach out. And if you don't see anybody on the horizon that could be a possible friend to you, then pray to the Lord. Say, Lord, I need a friend. I need somebody that I can relate to and they can relate to me. I need somebody to talk with. I need somebody to spend time with. Would you send me a friend? Would you send somebody that would be to me like Jonathan was to David? Did you know what? That's a prayer that will not be ignored by God. Why? Because he's all about family. He's all about friends. He's all about relationship. Human beings were built with a craving for relationship. It's in our DNA, physically, emotionally, spiritually. We were built to have rich, satisfying, purpose-filled relationships. So we need to cultivate and pursue relationship with God first, then with family, friends, and community. It is God's design. It is God's way. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed part two of Dr. Forrest's message, The Value of Relationships. If you are in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 9.45 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 10.30 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and access more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.